the Buddha, the historical Buddha, Siddhartha Gautama, was a human like us. He was a person, a guy, <laughs> a prince. He was uh, privileged. He was... Uh, he breathed, he thought, he felt, he got sick, he got old, he died. You know, he just did everything everyone else does. But he, through the course of his, his deep passion for quenching the, the deepest longing that a human being maybe can have, a longing for freedom, for relief, for the, as he called, the sure heart's relief. Through the process of him following that sincere yearning, he discovered, as is always spoken about whenever you hear the Dharma, he discovered the fact of our difficulties, the fact that everybody that's born has difficulties. He discovered for himself uh, that what seems to cause and increase those difficulties is the deeply conditioned habit of, of not wanting things to be the way they are or wanting things to be different. He also d discovered that it is possible in this very life to come to the end of that that struggle or that contentiousness with reality, with things the way they are, that you can actually be free even within the face of all the things that are difficult. And he discovered that there is a way that each of us can very systematically, very um, much created out of our own situation, our own, the current of our own life, the challenges of our own life, that each of us can use the very uh, stuff of our life as our path. And everything, there's not one thing that you have, that you are experiencing in your life that cannot be used in behalf of awakening. And if you do use it on behalf of awakening, you can, just like he did, uh, discover uh, a great, uh, the great heart of liberation that expresses uh, a boundless love, boundless patience, boundless generosity, boundless equanimity, that all of us have a capacity to become quite expansive in the, what are intrinsic qualities. And because of what he discovered, he was often described as the great physician but his uh, his medicine was not for just for the just simply for the dealing with our physical and our mental torments. That was uh, that's one thing. But it was really for the his genius as a doctor was really for his being able to tease out the fundamental the deepest disease that is the engine that drives all the other diseases, the spiritual disease, this, the uh, disease of what he called sakyaditi, sakayaditi, 
the disease of, of, the, of self, of ego, of the tendency to relate everything to I and mine, to add to experience, which is, it's really an add-on. And it's a mistaken perception that, that whatever is experienced is I or mine. How's that sound as you hear that? That the deepest problem is this eyeing and mying. Eyeing and mying. I, me, and mine. When he sat under the Bodhi tree it's in his, and had his, his own, through his own struggles and his own practice, in a flash of insight, at one point in his practice, when he had given up all desire for anything, where he had that one desire, no other desire could fulfill, when he had just abandoned every attempt to feed the wanting mind, feed his, his ill will, uh, feed his confusion, when he abandoned everything except the desire to be awake and be awakened, desire to be a Buddha, which simply means awake, at that point where he had an undivided interest and passion in awakening, his mind and heart became unified. It was no longer divided, like, oh, maybe this weekend I'll do a little meditation, and maybe I'll go to a retreat next year. But meanwhile, you know this, this, um, this, this new iPad just came out. No, I'm just kidding. And there's this film I want to see. And uh, my friend wants me to, uh, wants me to, uh, what does my friend want me to do? He wants me to do something. Go to a rave. Dance the night away. Dance all night. Now, there's nothing wrong with any of those things. But if you're interested in liberation, those somehow, as they did to the Buddha, appear to be be, uh, what we might call adharmic. They lead away from the truth if we get caught up in them. And they're really about, they're simply about fulfilling our conventional desires, which is... Again, not a bad thing, but if you're into liberation, everything becomes everything becomes about is this onward leading toward the liberation of my heart? Is this a wholesome use of my energy or is this an unwholesome use of my energy? Because whatever I do with my mind and my body is going to plant seeds. It's going to plant the seeds that either leads me to more wanting leads me to more irritation and complaining, or it's going to lead me to a sense of equanimity, a sense of, of serenity, a sense of goodwill, a sense of acceptance, a sense of patience. It's going to lead... And what am I doing? What am I doing with my energy? So I'm just trying to point out that most of our energy is going every which way. And we may make excuses and say... Well, I have to because of this, 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 and this. 
and we definitely have to in order to find some balance in our lives. But even no matter what we do as a as a person in the marketplace or not, if liberation is the hub around which you're living your life, everything, everything gets used. Everything becomes the, as Trungpa Rinpoche called, the manure of Bodhi, becomes the fertilizer of your awakening. But we have to really clarify what our aim is. And the reason the Buddha suggested we clarify our aim, because if when our mind is divided, it's hard to see clearly. And when we're reverberating from the effects of, of actions that cause harm, either to ourselves or others, we can't really sit still. And when we can't sit still, we can't see clearly. We can't see clearly. We can't really see what he saw. We can't understand things for ourselves. We can only adopt views and, and adopt religions and then fight with each other over ideas and views. We can't really know for ourselves with absolute certainty absolute confidence, complete relief of the heart. We can't know unless we see for ourselves. And is what we're doing with our lives, is it leading toward seeing for ourselves what's true? Or is it leading toward confusion and, and delusion and, and I don't know what to do and I don't know where I am? And is it leading toward being incessantly waiting, hoping, uh, hostage to the, the imagined future? Or is it, is it waiting to get even? What is, what, are, what, what is the inclination of our mind? Remember, the, one of the most famous lines of the Buddha is, whatever one frequently dwells upon becomes the inclination of the mind. So what have you been thinking about and, and obsessing about? And what's your focus? That's just the, one of the first thoughts I had. What is our focus? That's an inquiry question. What is my focus? I know you're here, so I know you have some interest in, in liberation. It's not just to feel better and a little... But it, I think we need to be honest. Am I here just to have a little peace? Am I here... You know, do I understand that this actually, sitting quietly, paying attention, paying attention throughout the day, it actually leads somewhere? It's not just, it's not, not just a little New Age self-help thing. It's not just to relax a little, it's to, it's to awaken. And if you know that and you aim that way, then it gives it a little more jet propulsion. It gives, a little more, gives it a little more juice. If you don't know where you're going, isn't it Yogi Berra? If you don't know where you're going, you might not get there. <laughs> That's why he said if, the, if you come to the fork, a fork in the road, take it. Anyway, I, you're not into Yogi Berra tonight, I can tell. <laughs> anyway, when the Buddha was sitting under the Bodhi tree, under the bow tree in, in, uh, near Bodhgaya in India, his mind became centrally focused on the, on the discovery of something reliable, a reliable place to rest, something would, that, would, that wasn't so fleeting, because he saw, just as all of us do, he saw the reality in his roaming around, he saw reality of sickness, of old age and death, and he saw that people don't spend, people spend a lot of time wanting what they don't have, and a lot of time not wanting what they do have. And he saw that there was no rest in that, there's no rest in there's no rest in trying to have to, 
to centering your pride and identity around health, even though we naturally want to be healthy, but to have our, our life invested in health, it's a, it's a losing proposition. To have our life invested in, uh, in, in, even in life, in thinking we can have perpetual life, not a very good investment. Uh, what was it? Pr- pr- that having, being invested or identified with youth, not a very reliable proposition. There's aging. So he just saw in the course of his life that there was nothing reliable in what we normally become preoccupied with. It was just a loop, a samsaric loop that gets us in this spinning, endlessly waiting for a happy that, happiness that never arrives. How do you feel now? <laughs> do, you, can you, do you recognize yourself? I recognize my mind in all the ways that it do, still does this to this day. Fortunately, I'm hip to, hip to the game that my mind plays. It's, it's wired to want what it doesn't have and not want what it does have. It's wired to not be very good with things that are unpleasant. It's wired to, uh, to be obsessed with what's next. No wonder it's so hard to settle back into the moment. Fortunately, he got clear. He was hip to the mind's game, and he decided to stop and decided not to get up until he found something that he could say, yeah, this I can put my trust in. And his mind got very focused, very clear, very bright, until everything he saw, it was so clear, things, things were reduced, as they can be for you, they were reduced to their bare simplicity. If we're really, really present, if you're really present right now, life is incredibly simple. It could not be more simple if you are present right now. And what he saw in the simplicity of being present with his, he wasn't shut off from the world at all. He was shut off from his imagination of the world. He just wasn't, he wasn't busy proliferating about things at that point. He was, he had brought it down to the, the observing power anchored in what's actually happening here, like those lions I described last week, really tuning into what's happening. And with a a mind that was so centered on what's actually real, being able to discern the real from the unreal, that's that's really what the Dharma practice is about, seeing the difference between what's real and unreal. And everything we think is real in the sense that it appears in our minds, but none of it has any substantiality. Our dreamscapes, our, our, our visions, our, our memories, our plans, our, our ideas about ourselves, none of it's real in that it, you, it, there's nothing there to hold on to. It's just, it's like a phantom, it's a bubble, it's a dream. Nevertheless, it's real in that these things come and they affect our body and they torment us and all that. But he wanted to get at what is real, reliably real. And he got it down to basically six things. Six things that kind of blew his mind. And it was, it was encapsulated in a very famous discourse 
or famous utterance called the all. All. All there is, basically. He didn't call it. It's not called all there is. It's called the all. It's just kind of funny. But in the all, he says, in the scene, in the scene, there's just what's seen. It's kind of a revelation, isn't it? Do you know what that means? In the scene, there's just what's seen. When we're seeing, there's just seeing. There's just seeing. There's just light hitting the door of perception called eye. There's a base, there's a sense base, there's an object, and there's consciousness that flashes on when that, when that eye consciousness is triggered, and there's seeing. And that's it in a moment of seeing. Now that's, we don't usually stay with, in the scene there's just what's seen. We go, oh, I'm seeing a a person who reminds me of another person, and that other person really bugs me, and this person bugs me too. And for, within seconds, we have, our mind has complicated the scene with a whole mental elaboration. Do you see how your mind does that? Try to look at anything and just see. Try to see, be, try to see before your mind even adds the concept of what you're seeing. Because we don't really see people. That's a certain conventional way of, of sizing it up with an overlay of an idea. But we just see color, shape, form. But what he's, the, the meaning of this is, I'll just continue and do the whole all. In the scene, there's just what's seen. In the herd, there's just what's heard. In the smell, just what's smelled. In the tasted, just what's tasted. In the felt, just what's felt. In the cognized, just what's cognized. That's all. Which basically means, there, in the scene, there's no me, there's no you, there's no self at all. In the herd, there's no you, there's no me, there's no self at all. In the smell, there's no me, no, there's no you, and there's no self at all. There's just what there is. And he saw that... It, Things in their simplicity, there was nothing in those flashes of experience. There's nothing that could be clung to. There is nothing there that is permanent, that is me, there is mine. There is nothing whatsoever there that you could say, this is me and this is mine. There's nothing in any experience that can be reduced to I and mine. Eyeing and mine. And you'll notice that when we experience life, even momentarily, free of eyeing and mine, free of I or my, there's usually not much suffering. So just for a moment, suspend your last I thought. And after your last one's gone, before the next one comes. No I thought. And just sense what the experience is. After the last I thought has passed, after the last my thought has passed, and before the next one arises. What is the direct experience? 
what could you say about that things as they are? Anybody willing to shout out? Please. Avoid. Well, you could, if you let go all that, you do it a lot better. You do it, do it a lot self, less self, self-consciously, a lot less, you know, with a lot less worry, with a lot less, yeah, with just with a lot less baggage. You just do it because it needs to be done. A lot, a lot harder when it's, oh, am I doing it okay? Am I doing it okay? Uh, will people like me? Will I like it? Is it? Will it fulfill all my dreams? Will I get what I want? Will I want what I get? That's what makes life really hard to bear. But in the scene, just what's seen, in the herd, just what's heard, where's the dukkha in that? Where is the dukkha meaning hard to bear in that? Where's the, suffer, where's the mental suffering in that? Please. Yeah, well, ewing and uring is really just a disguise for eyeing and meing and mying. That's also a, can be problematic. <laughs> what we and us and you know, so I, I notice my wife uses we a lot. And I completely adore my wife. But somehow when she says we, I, I don't know what to do with it for some reason. It's just a, self, uh, just a um, self-disclosure. I don't know what to do with it. But when she sa- if she says, I, I think as, human, as individuals, to say I is not a problem. I'm doing this, I'm doing that. That's, I is not a problem. I is selfless. I has no self. It's just a, a location. It's, a, it's an orientation. It's not really a problem. It is a problem when it is, um, when it is taken, when it is, um, when it is the, the absolute filter through which you experience life. When it becomes a filter, we feel cut off, separate. We feel there is a tendency not to feel at home. If for me to just say I and just recognize that I'm describing this mind-body process, not a big deal. In fact, if I can't do that, I'm constantly saying we, I'll feel very disoriented. So there has to be some sense of autonomy and wholeness and individuality. But we tend to, humans tend to, it's the way we're wired, we tend to add to um, create an excessive version of that that I and me, and that excessive version creates um, tension. Creates tension. It creates it. The tension then generates greed. I then wants, and then what one wants becomes mine, and that whole process of eyeing and meing and mying produces a feeling that I'm not. I don't have enough. I'm not enough. The world isn't enough. And it leads, that, confu- that tension leads to confusion. Then I don't know. I don't know where to, I, it gets, gets so bound up in getting what we need or what we want. I don't know where to, then I don't know where happiness is to be found. 
Because that certainly doesn't, and it's never worked for anybody. It's never worked for anybody to associate one's well-being with satisfying desires. With just, with that as our devotion. It has never made anyone happy to solve every single problem or to get even with every single person who has caused you problems. Aversion, grasping, not made anybody happy. And confusion that comes from that has not made anybody happy. And the delusion that builds in our mind of the of the the imaginary version of ourselves, again, it, it, that version can never be secured because it's imaginary. But that doesn't mean that you're not here. You are here as this field of this amazing sensual field of aliveness that sees, hears, smells, tastes, touch, and even thinks. But within that, there's no, there's the, the agent, the one who we imagine is running this whole show, is not, there's really not, none there. So there's not only not an agent to this whole process, nor can anything that that imaginary agent uh, has be called, it can't be called mine. There's nothing that we can really own. As Jack Cornfield even said about our body, this is a rent-a-body. You can't even, this body is not mine. This mind is not mine. These feelings are not mine. Whatever I own is not mine. That's just a projection about a, the, a description of a kind of relationship, of stewardship or of being connected to. But there's nothing that we can hold to as I, me, or mine. So the Buddha, when asked to reduce, in one of his other sutras, to reduce the teaching to one phrase, what did he say? The whole teaching, the whole practice, everything about the Dharma, this may make you not want to come here anymore. <laughs> no, I doubt it. But <laughs> he said this line, nothing whatsoever should be clung to as I, me, or mine. Now, he didn't say that to make you feel confused about who you are. He, he was giving you, he was pointing, he was giving pointing out instructions. He was offering you a way out of your confusion and the way out being in to the simplicity of what's actually here. Remember, in the seen, there's just what's seen. In the heard, there's just what's heard. In the smell, just what's smelled. In the tasted, just what's tasted. In the felt, just what's felt. In the cognized, just what's cognized. That is all. Now, when you're in touch with that, I don't know a person here, unless you add to it or consult your memory, there's not a person here that will find, will find bondage or suffering. If you're really that immediate, that simple, that much in touch with reality. You will, in an instant, maybe it's a glimpse, but you will instantly know the, the a cessation of suffering. So he, let me just finish the line. 
Nothing whatsoever should be clung to as I, me, or mine. Whoever has heard this teaching has heard the entire teaching. Whoever has practiced this teaching has practiced the entire teaching. Whoever has realized the fruits of this teaching have realized the entire, the fruits of the entire teaching. So, I saw a hand go up, please. A trunk? What was the two words? Let go, yeah. Ajahn Tomato shrunk it down to two words, let go. Thank you. Please, Madison. Yes. Yes. Uh, Madison was asking about saying about when when I asked what what happens when you just see and that uh, we see just color shape and she said well she saw gray or the color but then there were immediate associations that arose and and it's usually the associations lead to a chain of associations and pretty soon we're no longer just seeing things as they are we're seeing through the lens of memory percept you know lots of lots of different elaborations the buddha called that um, papancha or complications or proliferations that's what our mind does that is just what minds do and our practice won't stop our mind from doing that from elaborating you may have more gaps between elaborations. There may be more moments of just being with life as it is. That seems to be the fruit of, of more practice. People seem to ha- find more harmony in the midst of things. On the other hand, you, by virtue of seeing the difference between just what's seen and the elaborations, you're no longer, you, you, by knowing that there's a difference, by at least some point in the span of your life, seeing that in the scene there's just what's seen, and knowing the difference between what our mind associates it with and all the elaborations, to even see that once, as the Buddha put it, wipes away, or one of the Zen masters says, wipes away beginningless, beginningless crimes. One moment of bare attention, of mindful attention, wipes away beginningless crimes because you see, you've seen the difference between concepts and reality. As the old uh, James J. Audubon line, you've seen the difference between the bird and what the field guidebook says. And he, as he says, always believe the bird. Once you've seen that, doesn't mean your mind won't elaborate, but you know that it's an elaboration. I know it's a complication when I start thinking I'm the worst person in the world or I'm the best person in the world or I'm better than or I'm less than or I'm equal to. or I'm, Whenever my mind's doing that, I know, to the degree that I can be mindful of that, I see that's just, that's describing somebody who doesn't exist, all that comparing mind. That's just comparing mind. That in the that no person is reducible. A person is just that 
process of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting. Of course, each individual does have all these different qualities, but the, the addition of above, I'm below, I'm equal to, I'm not enough, I'm too much, all that is just extra. And we can begin to see that when we know ourselves directly as beyond that. Because you're beyond whatever your associations or descriptions are about yourself. But I bet you have lots of, you've got a whole story going. And if you can see the difference between the, the story of Madison and, and Madison's direct experience, you have a, a little taste of liberation. And how do we actually reinforce that taste of liberation? Breathe. <laughs> yes, breathe. Be mindful moment to moment. Moment to moment, be with things in their simplicity. Be with things as they are. And you'll find it doesn't just turn you into a blob of presence. It actually makes us the question, how will, how will you chop wood and carry what? You'll be able to function 200% better with your mind unfettered by elaborations. Mind got very settled on retreat. Being in the dining hall with with very little thought. Everything is still seen, but but it wasn't being elaborated on. As soon as she, she realized that, she started going um, story shopping or thought shopping. Exactly, that's what our mind does. And see, just to be able to see that is free. It doesn't, it, when I talk about these things, it doesn't mean you have to stop doing this and stop doing that. You just have to see the difference between the field guidebook and the bird. Please. A fear of being cut off from the collective experience. What's going on for me and then thinking about what others are going on like in this moment. Um, right. Feeling limited and okay, if I'm just hearing, seeing, sensing. If I'm just hearing, sensing, I'll be cut off from the collective. I don't mean this to be cute, but it's exactly the opposite. When we come to a center point... And I think you'll increasingly realize this as you practice. When we come to that single point of being right here, the deeper meaning of any single point is it's connected to everything. It's then that we actually can feel the collective, that we can actually intuit more what's going on. But again, being here, being simple, doesn't mean that you can't reflect on, on the world and people in it. Being here... Being simple and reflecting on the word world is just being here, being simple, and reflecting on the world. So it, it includes thinking. It includes everything that your mind does. But you, you can see the difference between I'm speculating, I'm thinking, I'm then being lost in a story about what's happening in the world. That's when you actually get cut off from the collective. When you're busy noodling about, your, about your, how the world is for me. <laughs> Please. Yeah. All the achievement that that humans have have 
for the purpose of of creating something, becoming masterful at a sport or uh, creating a skyscraper or whatever, you have to have knowledge, you have to, have, you have to practice, you, you aim your ship toward that, that goal, that passion. I'm talking about the passion for liberation. So the, for, the, for liberation, you need nothing except to be simple and immediate. To, to, uh, to save lives, you need to study medicine. You need to, you need to develop discipline habits. You mean, need to become a good doctor. You need to go to medical school, whatever it is. For, those, for, for things like that. But for liberation, for freedom, you, you don't need as much as you think. Do you follow the difference? Absolutely. Uh, if if you if you want to if you want to save if you want to lower people's hypertension, you you put your attention on that. If you were to put your attention on that single-mindedly, and you'd first want to, you'd want to know what's really driving it. Is it because it'll make you famous? That's going to really impede your, and it becomes all about you, it's going to impede your, your, um, your process. If it's really coming out of compassion or caring or just a creative, creative spark, in some ways limp the, the self-referencing a little bit less than the, the action <clears throat> and what you're engaged in, then, it, then it's exactly what each of us will express Excuse me. Each of us will express life in our own way, in our own creative way, and it includes everything. What I'm trying to describe is the seeing the difference between what we do, what's done, and the excess elaboration that goes in our mind. That was the problem that brings suffering to our lives, is the eyeing and meing, is personalizing everything. And so if you're not personalizing anything, all those creative juices flow in whichever way is unique to our own expression of life. And for, are you a doctor? Great. Yeah. And I have a feeling that just seeing the smile on your face, that it probably wouldn't be about making yourself famous. Oh, it's your health problems. Yeah. Good. Anyway, I think we've kind of, I kind of went over, I got a little passionate there. <laughs> anyway, I appreciate everybody listening, and uh, I hope you all uh, come to the end of, of being, we're not going to come to the end of eyeing and meing, we're gonna, but we can come to the end of being bound up in eyeing and meing and mying, and be free. And I think it's worth uh, trying the path of love and mindfulness and see what happens. Don't. Don't stop. And uh, I just want to announce that I have a day long this weekend at Spirit Rock, 9.30 to 4.30 or 10 to 4. I don't remember. Please go to the Spirit Rock website or our website, uh, missiondharma.org. 
uh, a day long and it's for people who've done day longs before or other retreats and it's called uh, undoing time it's all about the concept of time and how it uh, functions in our life how it both helps us and how it torments us it's all about time it's really kind of central to the the whole preoccupation with self is the preoccupation of time uh, and I'll try to elaborate and it'll be fun though and last but not least, just a, um, a gentle reminder that uh, we're here uh, because of the generosity that has, uh, has come before, and it's because of your generosity that we can keep sitting here in this room because it costs us $600 a month, $150 a week. So any generos- continued generosity, it pays it forward to the next month. Uh, we have a Donna basket for room rental, and then... Whatever teaching is offered by me or anyone is also offered freely. There's no charge. But in order for it to continue, it's, uh, it is, uh, the invitation is that you uh, practice generosity, your form of generosity in the form of teacher Donna. And there are two baskets over there. And thank you in advance. And thanks for your practice. And have a mindful, loving week. And I hope you see things as they are. Oh, wait, I have one last... Thank you, Anne. Uh, We are looking for volunteers one Tuesday per month for setup and breaking down of the meditation hall. Volunteers, and who should they speak to? They should speak to Anne, who's sitting there with her arm up. It is a great opportunity to get involved, to let go of self, and be full of everyone. Anyway, thank you for your help. We're all in this together. Love being with you. I have a question about coming in mind. So recently I've been going through a kind of a confusing breakup. Um, not my confusion, but only the other person. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.